it's actually a very exciting evening for me, and I don't like to show emotion. Uh, uh, these two individuals have been at each other for 20 years, litigating very serious and consequential ideas. Um, they appear to be friendly. I hope they are. But uh, these, things, these things matter. Ideas matter. And they have very different conceptions of the world. You know, and they've been talking about the hard problem and consciousness uh, for 20 years. And tonight, we're not going to go there. We're going to be talking about the next shooter drop, which is this whole world of AI, which for me, uh, although I met the original cyberneticist in 1965, and I've been there ever since with all of them, um, uh, it got pretty boring in the 80s, and I just walked away from it in the world of expert systems. The Japanese had MITI, which was the, the fifth generation and they're coming, they're coming. They came and they went, and nothing happened. Uh, I happened to be there at the meeting when the Japanese uh, official who was directing the thing showed up, with, and it was Minsky, John McCarthy, Roger Shank, Ed Feigenbaum. Um, I happened to have a seat at the table, and it all just seemed to peter off into another AI winter. Um, 20 years later, you wake up and there's something called uh, unsupervised, uh, self-fulfilling deep learning. Uh, the AlphaGo uh, software, uh, Demis Hasibis and DeepMind, it was all very interesting. So I thought it would be valuable just to find out what's happening. I uh, put together a dinner in London with um, inviting Demis Hassabis, the idea being, let's have him talk to David Deutsch, who's one of the sharpest people that I knew, and get a sense of what's going on. And in the group at dinner were people that have nothing to do with computing, uh, but have a lot to say about reality, such as Ian McEwen, the novelist, uh, Brian Eno, the musician, uh, Terry Gilliam, uh, filmmaker. And uh, it was a fascinating start, and we call that the London Chop House Society Dinner. And we've had more since, and we'll continue to do so. Um, following that was a conference in Washington, Connecticut, where a number of people that have been thinking about AI their entire lives starting with the cybernetic world of Norbert Wiener, got together uh, people like Danny Hillis, who invented the uh, uh, he, he broke the von Neumann bottleneck uh, with parallel processing, his parallel processing computer. And uh, Peter Gallison, the uh, computer scientist, uh, historian, uh, Seth Lloyd, quantum theorist, and uh, Neil Gerstenfeld. And it was Neil that said, looking at Norbert book, said this is also prescient, but it was written 20 years ago. His 
worries about our culture, about the commercialization of science, it's all coming around again. We should do him a favor and rewrite, rewrite his book. And that's how this book started, and that's why we're here. So tonight, uh, we're going to talk about themes in the book, the title of which is Possible Minds, 25 Ways to Think About AI. And one theme is, is superintelligence impossible? And I thought we'd start off with five minutes by each of these gentlemen, gentlemen starting with Dave. Oh, sure. Um, such a pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks so much to, uh, to John and to Jana for putting this event together. I think it's going to be fun. Um, I'm on the side of, I guess one of our questions here is, is superintelligence possible or impossible? I'm on the side of, uh, of possible. I like, the, uh, I like the possible. Which is one reason I like, uh, I like John's theme, possible minds. I think it's a, it's a wonderful theme for thinking about intelligence, both natural and artificial, and consciousness, both natural and artificial. I mean, think about the space of possible minds. It's absolutely vast. All the minds there ever have been, will be, or could be. I mean, starting with the actual minds. I mean, you might think there's a lot of actual minds. I mean, I guess there have been 100 billion or so humans, minds of their own. Some pretty amazing minds have been in there. Uh, Confucius, Isaac Newton, Jane Austen, Pablo Picasso, Martin Luther King. On it goes. Yeah, a lot of amazing minds, but still, um, you know, those hundred billion minds put together, saw just the tiniest corner of the space of possible minds. And we can add in, I guess, all the, uh, the non-human animal minds that there have been. I, I looked up on the, uh, on the web today how many, uh, how many organisms have lived, how many, you know, animal, how many animals have lived in the, uh, in the history of the planet. And the best estimate seems to be around 10 to the 29. Most of them are worms, it turns out, in the, uh, in the sea. Their minds may not, be, uh, may not be so interesting, but even a worm has a little, a little mind of its own. So 10 to the 29 minds there, which 10 to the 26, or 10 to the, at least 10 to the 20 are very, very interesting minds. Still, still the smallest corner of the space of possible minds. And what the computer, one of the amazing things about the computer is the way that it enables us to explore and expand that space of possible minds. I mean, arguably, for the first time since the, uh, the history of the planet, the computer has enabled some wholly new kinds of minds to come into existence, not by the standard methods of biological evolution, but by straightforward intentional design and programming. I mean, so far, the minds have been, you know, limited, but still, still interesting. John mentioned, uh, John mentioned uh, AlphaGo and its successors in the AlphaZero family, which have managed to you know, teach themselves to play Go from scratch in a way wholly unlike, it seems, the way in which a human would learn to play the game or would play the game at all, but nonetheless, turn out to exceed human capacities, at least in that one very limited dimension 
of game playing. Likewise, deep learning has led us to you know, surprising successes on things like image recognition, and speech recognition, and autonomous vehicle driving, and so on, where within limited domains, so they're not, they're not there yet on the autonomous vehicles, but at least in the speech recognition and the image recognition, starting to exceed human capacity. So, okay, we've had a limited, limited so far expansion of the space of actual minds to include some minds that we've designed. But so far, it's only the smallest of expansions. One thing I think we shouldn't do tonight is exaggerate where we've gotten to with AI to date. I mean, the, the advances are amazing, but they're limited. They haven't gotten us yet anywhere near general human intelligence. I think it's unlikely they're going to do so anytime soon. If it's not happening in the next 20 years, will it happen this century? Maybe. Um, you know, people say that with any given technology, people tend to underestimate its effects in the short term. Sorry, to overestimate its effects in the short term and underrate it in the long term. And that's my attitude towards AI. I think, you know, there's a lot of hype right now. It's, it may not change our lives completely in the next 20 years, but in the next 200 years, it's probably going to transform everything. And, and one of the reasons is, it's just this extraordinary... AI builds into it this way of kind of a self-enhancing, a self-perpetuating mechanism of exploring the space and expanding the space of possible minds. Already, we, I mean, the early AI programs, you had to design them yourselves. People would actually, you know, program in Turing, you know, basically wrote a, Alan Turing wrote a program that could play chess. And he, you know, built in some very simple rules of thumb for playing chess, and it played chess not very well. Now, the chess playing systems like, uh, like AlphaGo, learn to play chess from, uh, from scratch and do so amazingly well. Learning serves as a method for moving ahead in the space of possible minds. Start from a pretty simple mind with the capacity to learn and it gets somewhere. Evolution is another such method. And I expect to see AI exploiting, ev exploiting evolutionary methods where um, where systems, we have some kind of system of artificial evolution among a bunch of different AI programs and their capacities expand in surprising and unpredictable ways over, over time, thereby also you know, getting us far beyond that starting point. So learning and evolution in computers are ways of expanding that space of minds. I think the most powerful method of all, though, in exploring that space is one which is still to come. And that's once you actually have AI systems doing the designing. Once AIs are designing AIs. Just say we get to the first AI, which is at human level capacity for, for various kinds of general intelligence, and in particular at human level capacity for designing AI. Then, a little while later, you know, within a year or two later, these things always get better, you're going to have um, this AI program will be at greater than human level for designing AIs. Therefore, it will be able to design an AI, AI which one way or another is better than itself. Why? Because it'll be better than humans at designing AIs. The humans designed it. It'll design something better. So this process of recursive, recursive self-improvement or recursive self-enhancement, first put forward by the philosopher and statistician I.J. Good, I see as an amazing bootstrapping method for exploring that space of mind. We start 
from our little corner here in the space of possible minds. Learning and evolution expands it, still to, to a much bigger area, but still a small corner. But once we have AIs doing the designing, you know, this is the space of minds we can design AIs, but the AIs we can design may be able to design AIs far greater than those we can design. They'll go to a greater space, those will go to a greater space, those will go to a greater space. So eventually, you can see there's probably a vast, um, there's vast advances in, this, in the space of possible minds, possibly leading us to systems which stand to us as we stand, say, to a mouse. And that, I think, would be genuine super intelligence. So I think that's possible. And I also think it's not, okay, not going to happen in 20 years. It's not going to happen in 50 years. But we do have to think about it. And we do have to worry about it. The AIs which we create will have the capacity. I mean, a working definition of intelligence here is the ability to fulfill your goals across a wide range, across a very wide range of goals to solve problems and find ways to achieve your goals in extremely powerful ways. These AIs, by definition, will be, uh, will be uh, systems which are extremely powerful at achieving their goals. If they have goals, then unless there's some countervailing force, then they're probably going to achieve those goals. So we, have to, we have to then be very, very careful. What are, our, what are the goals of these AI systems? As philosophers, we like to think about values. What are the values we put into these AI systems? We also need, at some point, to think about consciousness. Are these AIs that we're creating conscious? Um, how does their consciousness relate to, uh, to human consciousness? Um, are this, is this going to be a world of wonderfully enhanced subjective experience or a mindless world without consciousness at all? That's something maybe we can talk about as this goes along. The final question I think we need to ask is, where do we as humans stand with respect to these AIs? Are these AIs the systems that replace us? Or rather, are AI systems that enhance us? Maybe do we ourselves eventually become the AIs? Do we enhance ourselves? Do we upload ourselves to eventually be the AIs, which are on the forefront of this expanding wave of superintelligence. That's an attractive prospect in some ways compared to the one, the prospect where humans don't exist at all and get, uh, and get wiped out. But it raises so many questions. Could you upload a human mind into a computer? This raises some of the oldest philosophical questions of identity and consciousness, which I think is a wonderful, which is a great thing that John has managed to bring a number of philosophers along with scientists and engineers to think about these questions at this time. Thank you. Uh, I, should add, I should add that Dave is University Professor of Philosophy and yeah, Neuroscience. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot, sorry. I'm sorry. Co-director of the Center of Mind, Brain, and Consciousness at New York University. Dan Dennett needs no introduction. Hey. But I will. Yeah. Uh, I demand you take back that introduction. Dan, Dan is university professor, Austin B. Fletcher, professor of philosophy, director of the Center of Cognitive Studies at Tufts. Thank you, John. Thank, thank you, David. Um, this is supposed to be a debate, but almost nothing that David said is anything I disagree with, although I wouldn't put the emphases where he does. Um, Let's talk about possible for the moment. There's lots of things that are possible. Philosophers love to talk about what's possible. But many things that are obviously possible are never going to be actual. It's possible to build a bridge across the Atlantic. We're not going to do it. 
not now, not in a hundred years, not in a thousand years. It would cost too much money and it would be a foolish endeavor. And a lot of the imagined AI projects that are perfectly possible in principle are not worth doing. And in fact, some of them are definitely things that we shouldn't do because they'll make more problems for us than, than they'll solve. So just, just bear that in mind. Uh, somebody said that the philosopher is the one who says, um, we've know it's possible in practice. We're trying to figure out if it's possible in principle. <laughs> and uh, uh, unfortunately, philosophers sometimes spend too much time worrying about logical possibilities that are in, importantly negligible in every other regard. So um, let me go online on re the record is saying, yes, I think that conscious AI is possible because after all, what are we? We're conscious. We're robots made of robots made of robots. We're actual. So in principle, you could make us out of other materials. We could be, you could be, uh, uh, some of your best friends in the future could be robots. Possible in principle, absolutely. No secret ingredients, uh, but we're not gonna see it. Um, we're not gonna see it for very good reasons. One is, if you want a conscious agent, we've got plenty of them around, and they're really quite wonderful. And the ones that we would make would be not so wonderful. And for me, one of the really important fears about the future is that long before we've, and David agrees with me about this, it's not gonna happen in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Long before we got to super intelligence, we would have human beings who are so dependent on non-super intelligences that we would become uh, fragile, brittle in some very important ways. And I think uh, that's, we, we might call that the GPS problem magnified. Um, people have begun not being able to read maps anymore or know how to get anywhere without the help of GPS. Use it or lose it. And I think use it or lose it is going to play a big role in our, in everybody's lives uh, in the immediate future. Um, how many people, I wish we had the house lights up so we could see people, but I'll just ask you anyway. Is there anybody in this room that knows an algorithm for extracting a square root? I learned one in school when I was in about eighth grade. It's not easy, but there are algorithms for doing square roots. Nobody bothers anymore. Nobody knows how to do that because you've just got that little button, single button on your hand calculator gives you a square root. Well, uh, many more important talents are going to atrophy and disappear, except in the hands of cranky craftsmen and things like that, who will, they'll, they'll still know how to make a horseshoe with a, with a, with a hammer and a, an anvil and a simple forge, uh, and they'll be able to uh, read a map and drive a car and other weird things like that. 
while the rest of us are simply disabled in those regards. So that's something that worries me even more. Uh, uh, what worries me is that we will, for the very best of reasons, turn over our responsibility for making major decisions to artificial intelligences that are not conscious and they're not super, they're just very intelligent tools. They're great fabrics of pattern recognition and so forth. Who knew 20 years ago there could be such things? We know now that there are deep learning, et cetera, et cetera. But when we start delegating major life decisions to systems that are basically just smart tools, then I think this changes our predicament, our human predicament in a, in a very important way. Um, my slogan about this is um, we want smart tools, intelligent tools, not artificial colleagues. The difference is that an artificial colleague is somebody who can take responsibility, can be a co-author, and can be morally responsible for decisions made. We're nowhere near that with artificial intelligence. In the meantime, I think that one of the major dangers and I do not, I have not figured out how to prevent this from happening. Alan Turing, one of my all-time heroes, set in motion one thing which I regret, and that is the Turing test puts a premium on deception, on convincing human beings that they're talking to a human being. I know why he did it, it was a brilliant idea, but ever since then, there has been this premium on what we might call the Disneyfication of artificial intelligence, making AIs that seem more human, they're basically false advertising. And whether we're talking about Siri or Watson or any of the others, they have this basically paper-thin human user interface which is deeply deceptive about what they actually understand. I think that's false advertising. I think it's unfortunate. I think it should not be honored. It should be criticized, it should be condemned, and that we should get out of the habit of uh, treating AIs as agents when they're not really. Now the reason this is going to be so hard is that as a number of people are foreseeing, in the immediate future, in the next 10 years, I think the major market for AIs is going to be elder care. And why not? Taking care of elderly folks who can't take care of themselves is not a good life for a regular human being. It's maybe worse than being an old-fashioned telephone operator. We don't regret the loss of those jobs. But an elder care AI, there will be good market reasons for disnifying them to a very great extent because old folks will want to have a companion 
not just somebody that brushes their teeth and gets them fed and so forth. And I do not like the future that is populated by millions and millions of old folks who are basically settling for an artificial companion that is really a fake in most important regards. Thank you. Um, can I pick up on something, uh, something Dan said? Because I think we do, we agree on an awful lot here, but I think we, maybe we do have a, uh, have a disagreement about this core question of whether there will be um, genuine autonomous AI. And Dan's piece in the book is wonderfully lucid and thoughtful on this, but I understand Dan's line to be, although it's possible to create autonomous, intelligent, conscious AI, we shouldn't do it and maybe we won't do it. Instead, what we should do is create tools and use the wonderful analogy of, uh, of Google Maps. You know, Google Maps, it tells you how to get to some place, but you still have to, have to get there. You ask, okay, I want, to, I want to get there, it'll show you a route, and then you still have to follow the route, but the human is still in the loop. You've got some advice, and then the human can take it. So that's what I'm seeing as Dan's vision of AI. Maybe you've got a uh, super intelligent AI, and I want to, to know how to, um, how to get to Mars, or how to win a war, or something. The AI will tell me what needs to be done, but the human will still be in the loop, and I'll get to do it. What I, want, what I worry about, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful vision. I just worry if it's realistic. I think there's going to be so many incentives to take the human out of the loop and to get these AIs, give these AIs the capacities to act on that advice directly and autonomously. In fact, this is already happening with Google Maps, you know, and navigation software. If you drive a, uh, if you drive some cars like a, uh, like a Tesla, for a long time that, you know, you say, I'm going to this, uh, I'm going to this, uh, this destination and it would do the usual Google Maps thing and it would, it would, show you the way to get there. Here are all the, here are all the routes, but you had, to still, you had to still, you know, follow it and make the decision. Then at a certain point, they, they introduced a button. It says, navigate on autopilot. What this means is the car takes those, takes those instructions and follows the instructions itself and, you know, turns the wheel and changes freeways and so on with limitations. It can't drive on ordinary city streets. The, but in a very, very small domain, what you see happening is that the car has become in a very limited way, autonomous. It has those goals, it acts on them. And yes, we can, we can still stop it and change the goals and so on. But when I think about, say, domains like autonomous weapons and the military, well, sure, for a, um, for a brief period when the stakes are low, maybe we'll just have you know, AI systems that advise a soldier on target detection and say, you know, now, you can, uh, now you can shoot. But, well, the AIs, but eventually the AIs are going to be so much faster and better at doing this kind of thing that when, that when you know, the stakes of a genuine international military conflict um, are present, it's hard to see that we're not going to have some kind of move, say, to genuine autonomous soldiers that, um, that have goals and actually execute them and, you know, and, and fire the weapons. And, and just more generally, biological systems are going to eventually be slow and creaky compared to the, these new super-fast um, AIs that for likewise financial purposes with the stock market, um, military purposes, even scientific purposes, the incentives are going to be so strong to 
allow the AIs to achieve the, the goals directly and to act on them, then I think you know, autonomy is just realistically going to be very hard to avoid. If the tech companies are running it, certainly it's going to happen. If the government's running it, if the military's running it, it's going to happen. So I don't really know what your vision is for how we'll avoid this from happening. Well, you raise, a, you raise a real and important issue, and that's how much autonomy do you want? Uh, as you say, autonomous cars, we don't want them that autonomous. Uh, uh, Dilbert, a few weeks ago, had some wonderful um, <coughs> cartoons where Dilbert, uh, Dilbert's autonomous car says, I want you to call me Carl. Uh, Self-driving car is my slave name. <laughs> and, uh, and Dilbert says, shut up and drive me to the market. And the car says, said the self-walking man. <laughs> um, we, we, don't, we don't want that much autonomy. I mean, autonomy is as good as synonymous with free will to me. And I don't think we want to give AI complete autonomy because AIs, because of the nature of the technology, have a certain invulnerability that we don't have. You can back them up and put them back together again and make another copy on Monday. And if human beings were capable of being completely backed up and then brought back on Monday, that would change the nature of human interactions and human relations dramatically. And I, for one, don't want to go there. And I don't think many people do. Uh, so if you make, if, if you're right that it's inevitable that market pressures and cleverness will lead to genuinely autonomous AIs, then I think we're in for a, a, a very bad future indeed. Uh, when could that happen? Well, we can give them more autonomy than they can handle, and that's what I'm afraid of. Let me, um, I mean, let me raise, just, uh, just raise a quick question. Caroline Jones is one of the essayists in the book and sent a question today that I think pertains here in regard to this reliance on the computational way of looking at the world at the expense of, she says, can you address the complexity of our wet cognition? A much more distributed notion of intelligence going beyond the ideas of computation, our sacred craniums, craniums you may, not, may not even be bounded by our own skin. In this regard, what is robot death without mortality? Can there be a proper, proper ethics um, in and of AI? So this, this computational view is very West Coast. And, and the cyberneticists, Wiener, uh, Shannon, McCul uh, McCulloch, von Neumann, had a much more ecological, deeper view of how things connect and don't connect. That's a, that's a great question. Um, let me link it to the discussion we're having here, because um, 
you know, a lot of it turns on what is, what is life and death in a, uh, in a computer, what is autonomy in a, uh, in a computer. And you know, Dan said autonomy basically requires free will. And then, okay, then we're up against all the philosophical questions of what is genuine free will. To get the kind of problems that we were talking about going about, you know, superintelligence and its dangers, I'm not even sure that it's essential that the AIs have free will or that they have consciousness. You know, that's a very, those are very, very deep questions. What's really going to matter for the, say, for the questions of safety and human survival and the things that people worry about is what those systems can do. And I think in this, so for this debate, I think maybe we can just, just describe autonomy in very simplistic terms. The system is autonomous if it has goals, it has a wide variety of goals, and has the power to achieve them. So advanced autonomous AI will be systems that not only, that, that, that have goals and can actually achieve them compared to Dan's tools AI, tool versions of AI, which can advise you on if you can take, well, this is my goal, I can advise you on how to achieve it, and then you achieve it. This is a much more limited form of autonomy. I'm not sure that consciousness would be required for this. Maybe on Dan's view of consciousness, it would. But even that limited, once, the, once you actually have the AIs with goals and with the power to achieve the goals, and I think that's already enough to get this worry going. I think that the difference comes out if we actually compare good old-fashioned AI with contemporary AI. At the moment, with deep learning and all the rest, what we have is, as I said, these wonderful pattern-finding fabrics. They're great at finding needles in haystacks and doing other amazing things. Um, but they, they haven't been formed into an architecture that's anything like uh, an agent with its own goals and so forth. Now, the two ways in principle you could go. You could go back to good old-fashioned AI and say, okay, we've got these great fabrics. Now we're going to do intelligent tailoring. We're going to do it from the top down. We're going to figure out what goals we want to install, and we're going to put Asimov's rules, and we do it all from the top down. That's one way we can imagine going. I think that's very brittle, very unlikely to, and much, much harder than people actually think. The other way is to let a rip bottom up and let these things evolve and learn and evolve and learn and learn and evolve and it'll be all done by bottom up quasi-Darwinian methods. Um, if we go that route, then what we know right from the outset is that we will not be in control. We will not be in control. And so we will be setting in motion something where the amount of autonomy the systems have will not be up to us. Now, I am not deathly afraid right now because I think that people who imagine this scenario and think this is coming soon are just wrong. And the, I think, orders of magnitude of, of difficulty stand in the way. Um, you know, you take Watson, 
brilliant in its own way. I don't know how many person centuries of brilliant work went into the creation of Watson, uses up the power of a small city. What percentage of an intelligent, conscious AI is it? I would say a fraction of 1%, you know. So turning Watson into an actual autonomous agent would be the work of, you know, many, many person centuries of work. Uh, and nobody even knows how to do it yet. Yeah, Watson is basically an exercise in what they call knowledge engineering. Give it a big enough, big enough database and a good way of dealing with all that, uh, that, um, that data, that knowledge, and it can retrieve and apply that information in all kinds of And it does cool some way. wonderful things. Yeah, it, I mean, it really can. It's a great tool. I don't think there's actually one thing. I don't know. You see those ads with IBM, Watson does this, oh. Watson does that. There's 30 different Watsons or 50 different Watsons yeah. out there. Watson is more a brand name at... Uh, at this point. Yeah, and, and some of it is hype, to put it politely. <laughs> I think you know, what a lot of the, the scientists right now are really excited, Watson is great, but what really excites people right now is machine learning, um, um, where you basically take systems, give them a whole lot of data, and train them to do certain things. Supervised learning right now, this is what you should be doing, but even that leads to amazing results and say, image classification, reinforcement learning, which is what was used to drive AlphaGo and AlphaZero, where you basically get the reinforcement of winning and losing. It turns out that's enough to drive learning and eventually unsupervised learning. But I think you're right that it's where learning and evolution are involved that all this becomes extremely messy and very hard to control. I mean, when you have machine learning, you're basically always, you're always optimizing something. You know, people in machine learning, they have an, what's called an objective function, you know, the way, the per an ideal of perfect behavior for your system, like completely matching the training set on, uh, on these images or classifying the language right or winning every game of Go, that's an objective function and a really good machine learning system will eventually approximate that objective function better and better and better. How it does it is not up to us. The objective function may be up to us. What do you want your system to maximize? What is the behavior you want it to model, but all this suddenly puts an enormous, once these systems have autonomy, that is the ability to act and to achieve their goals, that puts an enormous responsibility to, on us as the creators of the, uh, of the AI to get the objective function right, make sure our systems are maxi maximizing the right objective function. Roughly, they have the right goals. You know, your, your self-driving car, okay, the goals are to get you to the destination, but also not to, not to run into anybody on the way and to obey traffic laws and so on. Once you've got systems with human level autonomy, then you want to get that objective function just right. And I think that in some sense, that's going to be the challenge of autonomous AI, finding a way to make sure our systems have the right goals and values. And this is where all the stuff about the messiness of wet cognition also enters evolution, of course. Human beings, we don't have one objective function. We have many, because we were thrown up not by a straightforward designer, but by a whole process of evolution with the ultimate value of, reproduce, of you know, reproducing our genes. But with any number of little messy objective functions along the way, it may well be that some form of, say, of artificial evolution will eventually produce AIs as wet and as messy in a way as biological systems. Those, I think, will. will actually throw up even more challenges. You know, humans are so unpredictable in every ways, and 
in every way and in an international socio-political context, that's not really a good thing. If AIs are as unpredictable as us in those ways, you know, at a certain point, we may wish that we had simple AI with a simple objective function that we knew about, then at least we'd have AI we could understand. The subtitle of this evening is Philosophy and AI. And I have a question for both of you. How do you distinguish your work as cognitive scientists from that of philosophers? I'll tell you a story. 25 years ago, uh, I did a book called The Third Culture, which involved a chapter with Dan. And uh, I went to everybody else in the book and had them talk about each of the other contributors. Um, and Marvin Minsky got on the phone and I said, tell me about Dan Dennett. He said, oh, the greatest philosopher since Russell. <laughs> Fine. Six months later, I had to do fact checking. And I, let me read you what you said about uh, Dan Dennett, <laughs> the greatest philosopher since Russell. He said, I said, what? <laughs> I said, what I meant, sure, you know, he's great, but he's the only philosopher that understands what we do. So, uh, but you've become one of the people that does the real stuff. You know, so where does cognitive science and philosophy begin? And let's talk about the role of philosophy in AI, because frankly, I don't get it. Well, I think... I don't understand it. I it's think... Not, uh, it's not a problem. Um, there, is a, there is a sort of subfield of AI which has blended with cognitive science to such a degree that it roughly occupies the position that theoretical physics has relative to experimental physics. Um, that is, you have people who have done their homework, they, they know the technologies, they, they've got hands, they know how to code, and, but they're interested in the theoretical questions, the, and they're interested in helping the, the engineers, the AI people, sort out and understand what they're up to. You mean a subfield of philosophy, right? I think you said yes. a subfield of AI. Oh, subfield yeah. of philosophy, yeah, right. Um, and uh, it's sort of been my good fortune to be tutored over the last, what, 30, 40 years by some of the leaders in AI. So although uh, uh, I'm not a, a good coder, I have done some programming, <laughs> but, but um, nothing, nothing to impress anybody with. Um, but um, I think the current generation of philosophers of cognitive science are superbly well-trained, know a whole lot more than I did when, when I got into this, or than, than David did when, when he got into this, and I was there when he was a graduate student. Um, and uh, um, that's a that's a very good very good sign. I'm I'm reading a dissertation today. I was reading a dissertation on um, uh, predictive processing and Bayesian brain hypotheses, and it's a very technical dissertation. It's by a philosopher. That's not going to get you the Bakuran Prize. No. Uh, that, what's I did my, What's interesting in in terms of the philosophy community that you call mainstream, I don't see how anybody focusing on AI would win one of their prizes. 
at this point because oh I, I i think you're wrong i think that people philosophers who have thought about the mind many of the philosophers who have thought about the mind have thought about ai and someone like dan is a prime example he's one of the uh, one of the leading philosophers of mind on the uh, on the planet and some large portion some very large part of that is from his thinking about ai so i think it's actually been very very central in philosophy over the last few decades and the trend has been towards integrating the two pretty closely. I actually did my, um, did my PhD in an AI lab. My, uh, my PhD advisor was not a, not a regular academic philosopher. It was the, uh, the AI researcher, cognitive scientist, and writer, Douglas Hofstadter, um, well known to many of you for writing Gödel Escherbach. He also co-edited a, a book with, um, with Dan, The Mind's Eye. And I was in the middle of this AI lab coding, you know, writing. Uh, writing programs that, uh, that did things, some neural networks, analogy-making programs, and so on. And although I you know, haven't done a lot of coding in, uh, in the, last, the last couple of decades, I think for a philosopher to have that experience, actually getting yeah. their hands dirty and running um, and building these systems, it's just, you know, it stayed with me the whole time. Okay, my technical knowledge is now 30 years out of date, but it gives you something to, um, it gives you something to build on. So that's part of it. Philosophers can educate themselves in the science and in the engineering and can contribute to it. But the other part of it is you know, AI and cognitive science, there's a big part of it which is you know, software engineering, building the software. But there's another, there's a whole, there's another big part of it which is, when there's one part of it is what does it actually tell us about, say, the human mind? That's no longer engineering, but that's science. And it's also philosophy. We've got to start thinking about the relationship of these artificial systems to, say, human systems. And someone like, uh, like Dan has done a lot there. Someone like, say, John Sewell on the other side has argued that, no, this tells us nothing about the human mind or about human consciousness. And anyway, we need philosophers to come in and think about what is this actually telling us? What is it explaining? And there's also the, uh, the social and political and moral questions, not just what AI systems can we build, but what AI systems should we build. Dan just offered a proposal about that. Other people would offer different proposals. But at some point, someone's got to sit back and reflect on the ethical questions, which are going to involve reflecting on human values. What do we actually want as a society? And I think you know, philosophers know how to think about, uh, about human values. And I think that's increasingly becoming pretty central to thinking about AI. That's uh, very useful. Thank it's it's yeah, interesting, Dan. too, that in AI over the years, there's, there's been a similar gradient of philosophical interest. There have been some people in AI, basically they're engineers, that's all they want to be. They don't want to think about the philosophical issues. And that doesn't mean they aren't doing great work. Some of the really important work is technical work by people who yawn when the issues are, what, what relation is this to cognitive science or to the mind? What I think is ironic is that people way back, if you go back to uh, uh, the early days of Simon and Al, uh, Alan Newell and others, there was an attempt to divide the field into AI and cognitive simulation. And the idea was that cognitive simulation, this was using the computer to simulate human cognition. Whereas AI was by hook or by crook, anything that worked was fine. Oddly enough, the people who tried to do cognitive simulation 
ended up with these creaky GoFi models, which didn't do a very good job, while the people who treated it as by hook or by crook ended up inventing deep learning and other systems like that, which now we realize, ooh, maybe that's how the brain is doing it. So uh, it's sort of come full circle, which is a very interesting thing. And uh, Stuart Russell had a question specifically addressed to you. Stuart Russell is one of the eminent computer scientists that I think we all respect greatly. Dan, you seem to divide AI systems into conscious entities and tools. Is there no middle ground? Agent programs that pursue explicitly represented goals in the real world? Such agents could be arbitrarily competent as AlphaGo uh, in this little world and yet non-conscious. Or do you believe that consciousness will necessarily creep in as we make agent programs more and more competent in general? Can you tell us how not to make conscious <laughs> AI systems? Yeah, yeah. Good, good question. And I'm glad, I'm glad I asked it because I think indeed we can have very, 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 very intelligent systems which are not conscious in any interesting way. Um, but they will seem conscious in some ways, but they won't have important features that we have. Uh, it's very much a matter of whether they are capable of taking their own inner states as objects of scrutiny and doing that recursively and indefinitely. And that's a very special feature, which I think no non-human animal has that capacity. And that's the big difference between human consciousness and animal sentience. We can call it consciousness. I'm not going to argue about where consciousness stops or starts. But the, um, it's very important to realize that a lot of the, let's call them the, the techniques and structures that have been developed in recent years, which are just wonderful at analyzing causation, for instance, so that uh, directed acyclic graphs, the uh, Judea Pearl's do calculus and so forth, that can all be accomplished unconsciously. It, we can tell a story where it looks like conscious hypothesis testing, but it doesn't have to be conscious. We can get all those benefits without any bit of uh, acquaintance by the system itself with its own uh, inner states. Uh, you mentioned Judea Pearl, so there's a question for you. Let me just go ahead with the one on, um, on consciousness, though, I think. Well, okay, 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 go ahead. Well, uh, Judea Pearl is the father of the Bayesian network, without which we wouldn't have AI as we know it today, a real giant in the field. Uh, he asked, is it too bold to assert that philosophy will soon melt into AI in the sense that all philosophical questions, especially those concerned with consciousness, will, will be reduced to problems in AI? Well, I'd kind of put it the other way around. Philosophy is pretty good at spinning off its problems into the, uh, into the sciences as we, uh, as we solve them. You know, um, uh, Isaac Newton uh, considered himself a, uh, a philosopher. Um, but uh, he, he figured out, this philosopher figured out some really good methods for, uh, for solving uh, the problems of, what we know, of space and time and so on. Okay, we spun it off. 
we called it, uh, we called it physics. Um, along the way, the you know, philosophy has spun off uh, psychology and linguistics and so on. So I think what happens is that it's actually never the case that the spin-off solves the entire original philosophical problem, but we find some part of it which is tractable on which people can, uh, where we can find methods where people can agree where they didn't agree before, and then we say, okay, now that's actually managed to compel some agreement, say the scientific method and physics, and then we call that physics and linguistics and economics. Did physics solve every philosophical problem of space and time? Absolutely not. Some of the biggest ones are unsolved. Did psychology solve the mind-body problem? No, um, absolutely not. Yet, um, there are as many views on the mind-body problem now in the age of psychology as there were before. Is AI going to solve the problem of consciousness? No, almost certainly not on its own. On the other hand, what will certainly happen is that it will give us a whole lot of new insights. Um, we'll get AI engineered systems which behave in remarkable ways where we're tempted to suspect that they're conscious and that someone may even think that there's good reasons to think they're conscious, but we're still going to need philosophical reasoning to think about it. And this now gets back to the question about, of you know, the elephant in the room. Are these AI systems really genuinely going to be conscious? I mean, I think this is not something we can just dismiss as a philosophical question. Why? Because it's very deeply baked into our moral system, I think, as human beings that an entity has a moral status. It's a system that we should care about if and only if it's conscious, certainly only if it's conscious. If a, if a computer system doesn't have any consciousness, then it's basically a tool. It might as well be like, a, uh, like a, a car or a loudspeaker and so on. We can do with it as we want. It doesn't deserve moral consideration. If these systems are conscious, then at least they enter into the, uh, to the moral sphere. They're among the systems we have to start caring about. So if most AI systems eventually are conscious, then we can't simply use them as our tools. And we have to start thinking about these questions of whether they deserve equal respect, equal rights, and so on. So I think that's, it is, at least in my view, a, a crucial question. And my suspicion is actually that as AI systems develop, which are more and more autonomous, more and more capable of reflecting on their own their own processes, more and more capable of giving reasons and evidence. My own suspicion is that systems like that are going to have a sense that they are, in fact, conscious systems. We're going to talk to them, and you know, eventually, we're going to say, well, how do you, you know, you, uh, you said there's, uh, there's some people over there. How do you know? Well, I just saw them. What was that, what was that like? Oh, I, you know, I had, an, I had an experience, and, you know, maybe they'll start reflecting on philosophy. Well, you know, I know, like I've read the, the owner's manual, I know I'm just a whole bunch of silicon circuits, but I feel like so much more. Well, that's so, so maybe, so Dan's going to say they've got the illusion of consciousness. That's qualia for you. Well, that's all we, any of us have. Uh, but but uh, <laughs> um, uh, absolutely. Uh, one, one thing I think you underestimate, um, when I was working with Rod Brooks on COG, uh, one of the take-home messages from that whole experience for me is how little it takes in the way of animation and speed, particularly speed and grace, to convince most people 
that, that uh, a robot is conscious. Con Cog was never within a country mile of being conscious. And yet, there were MIT students who were banding together to think about the, the, our moral obligations to Cog, who were, who were concerned. And Cog did, not because it was planned this way, but did have some strikingly persuasive behaviors, uh, unconscious though Cog was. If you walked in the room when Cog was on, and Cog's eyes would follow you across the room. That would freak people out. Um, and uh, or or shaking hands with Cog was a was a good one. I had one of my uh, TAs. I took her over to the Cog lab to see Cog, and Cog's arm wasn't even attached to Cog's shoulder. It was just C clamped to the bench. And Matt Matt Williamson said said uh, go ahead, shake its hand. And she reached and she shook his hand its hand, and she screamed, it's alive! Um, because it wasn't funky. It, was, it had elastic, series elastic actuators, and it was, it was a, that was enough. So what I am quite sure of is that we're not going to have a problem convincing people that robots have moral rights and are conscious uh, uh, it's going to go the other way around. We're, we're going to have a problem convincing them that, no, these aren't conscious, not yet. Um, uh, you're being fooled by the, by the tempo. There's actually some great psychological data on this, on when people are inclined to say that a system yep. is conscious, <laughs> has subjective experience, that you ask, you know, you show them many cases and you vary, say, the body, is it a uh, metal body or a biological body? You vary what it's made of, silicon or neurons. You vary this, you vary that. You know, the one factor that tracks this better than anything else is the presence of eyes. Yep. If a system has eyes, it's conscious. If a system has, doesn't have eyes, well, you know, all bets are, all, all bets are, uh, all bets are off. So I think, yeah, the yep. moment we build our AIs and put them in bodies with eyes, it's going to be nearly... Uh, nearly irresistible to say they're conscious. But it's not to say, of course, that AI systems which are not embodied do not have consciousness. There's actually a website you can go to called something like, you know, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals? Well, this is the AI analog. I call it People for the Ethical Treatment of Reinforcement Learners. <laughs> and the idea is every time you give a negative signal to a reinforcement oh. learning signal, don't do, don't do that again. It's, it's getting a little bit of suffering. And every oh. time you give it a little bit of, you give it a reward, it's getting a little bit of pleasure. We have to make sure we give it a lot more reward than, uh, than suffering. Okay, well, may, well maybe that's, uh, that's not yet at the threshold for consciousness. But these questions eventually, once, look, I think once we actually get to the level of genuine autonomous um, agents, as Dan says, I think it's going to be very hard not to treat them as conscious, and that's going to raise many social philosophical so, questions. We're talking about ethics, and the elephant in the room are the ethics of the big five and you know, what they're doing with your data and how your reality is being programmed without your vote, without your permission. Let me read you uh, just a, a few words from George Dyson's chapter in the book. Um, Wiener, Nobel Wiener, became increasingly disenchanted with the, quote, gadget worshippers, end quote, whose corporate selfishness brought motives to auto automation 
that go beyond the legitimate curiosity and are sinful in themselves, end quote. He knew the danger was not machines becoming more like humans, but humans being treated like machines. Quote, the world of the future will be an ever more demanding struggle against the limitations of our intelligence, he warned, not a comfortable hammock in which we can lie down to be waited upon by our robot slaves, end quote. Comment? I mean, I think you have to address things like this if you're going to talk about what you're doing and what AI people are doing. Oh, the rereading Wiener's book to write my essay for this um, was a, astonishing in a way because I'd read it um, when I was an undergraduate, I think, and no, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, and then to read it today, it, it's uh, remarkably prescient in, in some regards. And uh, I think some of the essays in the book are genuinely scary. And I think that people ought to read those essays and decide for themselves if some of the proponents there shouldn't be sat down and, and tried to argue out of, we should try to argue out them out of some of their uh, uh, blithe confidence about what the future holds. I think we have some serious uh, problems looming and we should take them very seriously. I mean, yeah, he talks about humans being treated like machines. I don't know about being treated like a machine. I think I'm gradually becoming a machine. Now, half of my, uh, half of my memories are now, you know, either stored on my, uh, on my smartphone or, uh, or sitting in the, uh, sitting in the cloud. I was, uh, you know, trying to figure out the other day, who has, who has a bigger part of my brain? Is it, uh, is it Google? Is it Apple? Or is it, uh, is it Facebook? I think for now it might actually be Google. They've got, a, they've got a, an awful lot. My memories, my plans, calendar system, navigation system. You know, I mean, we've all long since become these giant exo-organisms with this giant exocortex, as Charles Truss called it, of, the, um, of, the, of the, uh, all the computer systems we're coupled with in the cloud. You know, I don't go anywhere without, uh, without consulting the... Uh, without consulting the internet at least uh, you know, five or 10 times in the, in the process. What is it I'm gonna be doing again? How do I get there? Who's gonna be there and so on. So, you know, so um, it is true that these corporations are basically owning some rather large portion of my mind if they wanted to do, uh, if they wanted to do um, bad things with it, I'm, uh, I'm in trouble. We're in the, uh, we're in the, we're certainly in some sense in the situation of having to give them a if, rather large amount of our trust. If they want to do bad things with it? Well, you know, if. they're doing small bad things with it. I mean, relatively, right, okay. They're not yet taking your mind and, and reprogramming you. Mind you, the brain, of course, they're brainwashing us bit by bit via the, uh, you know, the face, Facebook algorithm and the, uh, and the ads and, uh, and so on. Look, I think if there was a gen, I don't think they're, malicious, the big corporations. I think they just have structural incentives. If someone genuinely malicious got control of those, uh, of those systems, then we'd, have a, then we'd have a dystopia coming. So I think we do have to think about that. 